This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, happy Monday afternoon to you. And after half past 12 today, you'll take a closer look at Western Australia's winter grain crop because apparently it is the biggest ever. These are some of the figures in the latest Grain Industry Association of WA forecast. It's just come out. And Giwa believes 8.5 million hectares of winter crop has been planted this season. It's up a little bit, 400,000 hectares on last season. And some of the reasons behind this sort of biggest ever winter crop being planted is because of the pretty good start to the season. Hasn't been much since then, but the start was pretty good. And also the number of sheep that have been leaving the state, sort of 900,000 sheep from Western Australia heading east. So not as much need for... um, uh, paddock sown to pasture. So, of course, that's topped up the winter grain crop. Going through the details in that Giwa report for you after half past 12 today. First, though, in a surprise announcement over the weekend, the industry regulator has given the green light for a shipment of sheep to set sail from Fremantle Port to the Middle East. Now, as you know, 56,000 sheep were set to sail on the MVLQ8 last month, but were delayed because of a COVID-19 outbreak among the crew. An initial application for an exemption to ship the sheep during the Northern Hemisphere summer moratorium was rejected, and the sheep are currently in a feedlot south of Perth. And the plan was to process those sheep at WA abattoirs. But now it's back to plan A, and the sheep may actually be shipped to the Middle East after all. And I say might because the sheep are required to leave Fremantle by Wednesday and with Animals Australia filing an urgent application in the federal court to challenge the exemption, that, of course, could delay the whole process. CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton, explains why this new application for an exemption got over the line when the previous one was rejected. It's important to clarify these were two separate applications. The first exemption application related to a second vessel coming to collect the sheep. But this exemption that has been granted relates to the LQ8 itself, which is the vessel that is currently in Fremantle. And that crew are safe and well, is my understanding, and is able to leave. So that's, that's the key difference and why the exemption was granted this time. Yeah, and what are the conditions for setting sail after that deadline of June 1? Oh, there's a range of conditions. Obviously, the stocking density is reduced quite significantly. We know that can have an impact on heat stress risk levels. Also, the the, the vessel, the vessel itself is state of the art. It's one of the very better vessels to carry sheep. So that will be very good. But one of the other things that's really interesting that the exporter is doing is they've got this active voyage management where they actually do have a panel of experts monitoring the voyage every day throughout the journey, which wouldn't normally happen. But I think that's a, it's an acknowledgement from the exporter that, yes, there is a, an increased risk, but the, I, I'm, I'm very confident they've got the measures in place to manage it. You mentioned there that there's a reduced stock numbers. What are we looking at of those 56,000 sheep? How many will be on that ship? 
Look, my understanding is it's dropped down to around 40,000. Now, I don't know, I'm not going into exact numbers because the export is just working that through with the, um, in light of the, the decision, which is a significant reduction, but it, it, there is a appetite both from the importer and the exporter to proceed, which I think is actually a, a really clear indication of how important this, this consignment was to our markets in the Middle East, particularly Kuwait. They still would like the sheep to come. So food security is so important for them and that's a responsibility we have as an industry as well. So same ship and it's a Wednesday deadline as I understand. That's my understanding as well. So it's got to be departing by Wednesday midnight. That's in the public statement of reasons. When the vessel will actually depart and load, well, that's the exporters working through those processes. So we will know when it, when it gets going. But obviously, uh, things will be happening so it can leave as soon as possible. Just finally, how welcome is this decision? Look, we're, we're very welcoming of it. We think this is actually a... A very sensible decision. Um, it recognises the extraordinary circumstances that were faced by the exporter. We're not unaware of the risks, but we think that there are appropriate measures in place. And, and when you look at the, the world at the moment and how important trade is and how important food security is, this is a real positive signal to our trading partners as well, that we are open for business and we value their trading relationships. So it's a very welcome decision. 10 past 12, that is... CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton. The decision to grant the shipment an exemption to travel during the trade moratorium has been welcomed by the industry. Pastoralists and Graziers Association President Tony Seabrook says common sense has finally prevailed. This could have happened uh, a long time ago if the right heads had been sort of putting their, you know, actual working together to solve this, and it didn't happen that way. But wiser heads have prevailed, and it's a good decision. Is there any worry about the potential for some kind of appeal from those who oppose the trade? Yes, I'd be very surprised if they don't attempt to do something. It could be as silly as trying to block the bridge uh, over the river or you know, some physical activity uh, on the road to obstruct trucks. The most dangerous one of all is an injunction, but that can backfire and cost them a lot of money. I believe that, well, there's rumours that they're going to make an appeal against the government decision, and that being an appeal doesn't need to be accepted. But let's timeline this, because on the 22nd of May, on Friday the 22nd of May, the ship notified Canberra that they had a problem on board. By the Monday of that week, which is three days later, the state government here knew all about it. And if we'd had proactive ministers, both federally and at a state level, they should have been working as hard as they can, as quickly as they could, to put Plan B in place. And Plan B was another ship off the coast of Africa that could have been here in five days. We probably wouldn't have met the deadline of the end of May, but it would have only been one or two days beyond that. And the shilly shallying around, the inability and the bungling that went on both at a political level, the state and, and federally, just saw this deadline draw out further and further and further. And it's, it's been very poorly handled by almost everybody involved. Tony, how confident can we be that come Wednesday this ship will be on the water setting sail? Yes, there's, nothing's a certainty. Nothing is ever a certainty. You never quite know know, where an issue might prop up. And I'd say that the RSPCA and Animals Australia are doing everything they possibly can right now to work out whatever plan that they can concoct to delay the ship or to stop it. 
So it's not a done deal till the ship sails, and there'll be a lot of tension in the camp until that actually happens. Pastoralists and Graziers Association President Tony Seabrook talking to Jess Hayes about the Federal Department of Agriculture's decision to approve RETWA's second application for an exemption to export a shipment of sheep to the Middle East. This is the country hour, 12 past 12. And the industry's concerns that this exemption will be challenged were spot on. As I mentioned earlier, Animals Australia has filed an urgent application in the federal court to challenge this decision. Now, Animals Australia didn't want to talk to you about that move today, but federal Liberal member for O'Connor, Rick Wilson, is here. Rick Wilson, if this challenge in the federal court delays the shipment leaving on Wednesday... Does that mean the exemption is cancelled and the sheep stay here in WA for processing after all? Uh, well, look, I would imagine that, uh, that that would be up to Retwa, the exporter, of course, but I imagine that they would apply to the federal government for, for, for further exemption. I mean, uh, uh, the exemption was, was granted uh, on the basis that uh, the, the uh, Department Secretary took all matters into account, and although uh, there are some uh, concerns over the wet bulb temperature reaching 29 degrees during the 90 nautical mile uh, Straits of Hormuz, uh, the other matters that were taken into account uh, were the trade relationship with our uh, with our Middle Eastern partners and other factors that uh, led the Department Secretary or the Deputy Secretary uh, to sign off on the exemption. So depending on what uh, Animals Australia's injunction is about, and uh, I have had a brief look at their document, it seems to be on the basis that while they were consulted by the department in the first exemption application, they weren't consulted in the second application. So I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure whether that's sufficient legal grounds for uh, a federal court judge to grant an injunction, but uh, we'll see that play out in the courts. But just to be clear then, we could be just sort of back and forward with exemption application after application if the court delays the Wednesday shipment leaving Fremantle. Well, we could be, and I guess that is, uh, you know, one of the weaknesses in the current system. And uh, uh, you know, Animals Australia, and we've seen other activist groups do it in, the, you know, against the coal industry and others, where they'll just uh, continue to conduct lawfare. And if that's the case, then I guess the government will have to look at changing uh, the rules around how these uh, exemptions are granted. But uh, you know, we are at the moment uh, operating within the, the framework that is available to the government, and the exemption has been granted. Now, uh, Animals Australia or any other group have the right to challenge that in court, but uh, hopefully a federal court judge uh, looks at this matter very quickly and makes a decision one way or the other, and then uh, we can either get on with getting the ship loaded and getting it on the water, or uh, if we have to, then we'll look at another exemption. Now, how did this second application for an exemption come about? I mean, did the uh, Retwa, the exporter, approach the Department of Agriculture asking, you know, how can we get this shipment over the line? Or did the Department approach Retwa saying, you know, if you make a few tweaks here and there, uh, we could get this approved. So why not put another application in? Because when I think back to the conversation I had with Mike Gordon from Retwa, he seemed really resigned to the fact that the shipment wouldn't go ahead once the first application was rejected. So how did it come about, this second one? Well, the first application was in relation to a vessel called the Alba Sealer, which uh, is a, an older 
vessel uh, than the LQ-8. Um, and uh, as the crew members of the LQ-8 uh, started to come out of quarantine, I believe the exporter thought, well, uh, here's an opportunity. We, we, will have a, we will have a fit and healthy crew uh, to go by the 13th. So they, uh, they reconsidered and they submitted an application for the LQ-8. It's a significantly different application. The, the, the ship is three days quicker on the voyage, so 11 days on the water instead of 13. It has, uh, it's the most modern ship on the water. It has the best pen air turnover uh, on the water. And uh, they put a submission in on the, on the basis that uh, this was a, a much more modern ship that could uh, give the department more uh, certainty and comfort around the animal welfare conditions. What insights do you have to the Federal Department of Agriculture and how they're assessing this, I guess, because, you know, one minute it's a no, the next minute it's a yes. What's the feedback coming Um, from the department? uh, Well, I haven't spoken to the department directly. Uh, I thought their first decision was the wrong decision. I I read the the full 25-page document, and while uh, the Deputy Secretary who signed the first uh, application or the refusal noted that there would be an impact on farm gate prices and noted that there would be an impact on our trade relations. Uh, I don't believe uh, that that decision gave weight to those decisions. Uh, they just noted them. Obviously, there was a change of uh, a change of mind in the second application. Uh, as I say, it's a different ship. There's certainly, uh, for me, there's more comfort around the animal uh, welfare uh, outcomes on the LQ8. So, yes, uh, while I was disappointed in the first decision, I'm very pleased that, uh, that the second decision decision uh, was a positive outcome. What role did you play in this? What pressure did you put on the different parties? Because I've had a few calls today saying that um, you were very upset about the first decision and you were prepared to put in a letter of resignation if this didn't get over the line. How accurate is that? <laughs> uh, well, that is, that, is, uh, that is not true. I at no stage threatened anybody with my resignation. I was very disappointed in the first decision, no question. I do what a, a member of parliament does. I lobbied my senior colleagues and... Uh, and you know, the uh, RECWA uh, came up with a very good application, which the department's approved. So I think uh, I've just done my job as the member for O'Connor and the representative of a lot of people who rely on uh, the live sheep trade for at least part of their income. Now, originally this consignment was 56,000 sheep, and there is talk that, that now could be 50,000 or even 40,000 sheep. Do you know how many will be exported if this all goes ahead? I'm not 100% sure. I know we are very grateful for the exemption and uh, the original letter that came through Saturday morning had the maximum weight at 54 kilos for a weather and 53 kilos for a ewe. Uh, subsequent to that, there has been a directions letter, which is the which is effectively the approval letter uh, from the department uh, signed by a more junior member of the department who uh, has lowered that maximum weight to 50 kilos. Now, I'm not sure whether that how many more sheep that takes off the boat, uh, but uh, I'm not quite sure how that process worked. The, as I say, the Deputy Secretary signed a letter uh, saying that the maximum weight would be 54 kilos for for a weather, and uh, within 24 hours that had been reduced somehow to 50 kilos. So I'm looking into that at the moment. Uh, but last time I spoke to the exporter, they were hoping to get you know around the 40,000 sheep on the boat, which is not the best outcome but it's a it's an outcome and and uh they can live with that i can live with that and hopefully we can get the boat loaded by uh, tomorrow afternoon on the water how confident are you that will happen uh well i can't uh, I, I can't judge what will happen in the federal court in melbourne i know animals australia chose melbourne as their uh the place to lodge their injunction um and uh 
what a federal court judge uh, decides, we don't know. We had a wonderful result in the federal court only a couple of weeks ago with uh, Justice Rares. Uh, so hopefully, um, you know, we get a sensible decision in this case. Rick Wilson, thank you for being part of the country out today. Absolute pleasure, Belinda. Thank you. Federal member for O'Connor, Rick Wilson, on that decision for that shipment of sheep getting the green light, the second application for exemption getting the green light. And if all goes according to plan, it should be leaving that shipment of sheep on Wednesday from the Port of Fremantle to the Middle East. 20 past 12. And in other sheep industry news today, Sheep Producers Australia, that's the industry voice on issues that affect sheep production in this country, has appointed Stephen Crisp as its new CEO. Uh, Stephen says he comes from a family that's always run sheep and he's also worked for many years with processors both in plant and export logistics. He says the dual purpose is what makes sheep the best livestock to run in many regions and it doesn't really matter if a sheep is raised primarily for meat or wool. He says both need to work together to benefit animal welfare and biosecurity. And he says he looks forward to navigating the many challenges and opportunities the sheep industry faces. 21 past 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. News headlines and a look at the weather not too far away. Getting to that around about half past 12. John Testro's just sent through a text too saying that the... Uh, cattle market report from Uche's could be a little bit longer today because it was a belter of a sale. Stay tuned for the details of the Uche cattle market just before the news at one o'clock. Controversial new rises in export fees for horticulture have been put on ice. The increased levies, foreshadowed by the Federal Agriculture Department, were aimed at exports like fruit and vegetables and were due to come into effect next month. Export consultant Ian Locke explains why this proposal was controversial. For exports of onions, the fees for the inspection of those onions and the provision of a phytosanitary certificate were to be increased by about between 220 and 275%. Wow. So if you're an exporter, you've got to say you want to export... This season, 5,000 tonnes of onions. That'll be something like 100 invoices of about 50 tonnes each. And that would increase the costs from $7,000 a season to $20,000 a season. And that was potentially on the cards from the Federal Department of Agriculture. And they've ruled it out now? The export-free prices, price hikes have been put on hold for some considerable time. They didn't say when. There'd been a lot of industry agitation uh, and discussions and consultations with uh, uh, this particular sector within the Department of Ag. In fact, I went across to a meeting in Melbourne in November. We were part of an Australian-wide push to to have these fees reconsidered or not implemented because it was just crazy for that very reason I've, I've given you. The consultation period ended on the 31st of January this year and then between January and the end of May or beginning of June, there'd been complete silence on the whole issue and then there's this announcement that they'd be put on indefinite hold. Did they give any reason to why it's on indefinite hold? Well, just the usual stories, you know, it's not the right time to do it and the industry's suffering, etc., and, and those types of approaches. But in reality, it became evident that the amount of fees that they were seeking to impost on the industry was just unacceptable. We see, at the moment, the Department of Agriculture 
uh, recovers about 48% of its expenses in, in registrations and undertaking this activity. Other government bodies, such as Australia, I think recovers about 10% of what it does. And there are other ones, the Department of Industry recovers about 13%. So we're in a crazy situation where the Department of Ag wants to recover 48% of its costs. Where does that fund go for the department? It goes into their, well, it obviously goes into consolidated revenue and is used to offset the costs of registering establishments, registering exporters, inspecting goods for export and providing the documentation that then goes with the goods to other countries to, such as a phytosanitary certificate, etc. And their excuse was that those activities had gotten more expensive lately? There were a number of areas was that they had not been increasing their charges by small amounts to try and uh, have a level of acceptability with what they were recovering. Hadn't been increasing charges for four or five years. And I think there was a misstep with regard to negotiations being undertaken through free trade agreements and market access that take some years. And then when they're introduced, they've got to have a much higher level of inspection for compliance and they hadn't taken early steps to make sure that there was some sort of provision that as the costs increased, there was probably some contribution from industry. And so it just suddenly came as a big whack around the head. Yeah, and the proposed changes weren't quite equitable between products. Could you explain that? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, generally speaking, Australia's exports in the horticultural sector of fruit and vegetables is that fruits double the value of vegetables, and generally speaking, fruit is twice the price of vegetables and what they're sold for. But these costs were equal across both fruit and vegetables. So proportionately, vegetables are paying a much higher rate of inspection and certification fees than what the fruit industry was. Now, I don't want to get involved in that sort of argument because I think that's unfair, but this is where the system was not reflective of what was actually happening. Ian Locke, he's an export facilitator with the Tasmanian Fruit and Vegetable Export Facilitation Group. And just explaining to Hugh Hogan and you why some proposed rises in export fees for horticulture have been put on hold. He does say at some stage in the future, these will be considered again by the Federal Department of Agriculture. 26 past 12. The Kimberley Land Council is welcoming a state government investigation into the alleged destruction of Indigenous sacred sites by a company quarrying granite near Halls Creek. Over the weekend, Aboriginal Affairs Minister Ben White ordered an investigation into the alleged damage by Kimberley Granite Holdings at its quarry near Springvale Station. The company indicated the first time it became aware of complaints that cultural sites had been impacted was in February this year. But a letter provided to the ABC from the Kimberley Lands Council, or KLC, sent to Kimberley Granite Holdings on the 1st of October last year, states that an important cultural site was being destroyed. Tyrone Garstone is Deputy CEO of the KLC. Well, we have a letter that we have sent out to Kimberley Granite. Uh, and again, there was a face-to-face meeting on the 16th of October 2019. So over you know, eight, nine months ago. Mm. And why do you think then the weekend report seems to say the company says that they first learnt of complaints in February? I think there's a number of different people that raised concerns with the company um, that, that there was a potential issue around a site out there. So in regards to what they're saying, being aware as in February... 
that may be the only formal document from a government department making them aware of it. But in regards to the KLC, we definitely made them aware of it in October. So when do you understand that it was legally required that they stop work on this site? Well, that's the issue that we have with the Heritage Act. Um, at this point in time, there is no actual stop work order to stop them doing it. Um, you know, at the moment that there's nothing been issued by the state government, it's been a decision made by the company. And this is what we've been writing to the government uh, to do, was to say that they needed to do a stop work order. However, um, this, you know, the Minister uh, for Heritage, Minister Ben White, doesn't have the power under the Act to do so. And these are some of the fundamental flaws of the Act. Behind the back of this, the company will still be applying for a Section 29, which is basically a future Act determination to try and get the mining licence up. So even though they may be found in breach of disturbing a site, there is a real good chance that the company will still be issued a mining licence to continue mining operations in that area. These particular issues, what's happened here in the Kimberleys, what's happened there in the Pilbara, really starts to throw a light on that, you know, if it fundamentally, you know, Western Australia was founded in 1829. We have a society that's 191 years old trying to write an act to protect its heritage for a culture that's tens of thousands of years old. Fundamentally, that is flawed. You know, if the Heritage Act is put in place, it should be there to protect the Aboriginal heritage of the Western Australian people. It shouldn't be relied on the Native Title Act, the Mining Act, the Environmental Protection Act to be bolted together to you know, build this force field or this shield to protect Aboriginal heritage. It should be able to protect Aboriginal heritage on its own. Um, and that's the thing that we have to really try and address during these issues. And these particular cases that's happened in the Kimberleys and in the Pilbara just sh- shines a light on that. Kimberley Lands Council Deputy CEO Tyrone Gustone with Ben Collins. Kimberley Granite Holdings has declined an interview request, but it's understood the company has suspended operations at the site and an investigation into the allegation of damage is underway. And, of course, as you know, this news follows hot on the heels of the national backlash over Rio Tinto's blasting of sacred sites in the Pilbara, which has since shone that light on Section 18 of the Aboriginal Heritage Act. This is The Country Hour. It's half past 12. And with the latest from the newsroom, here's Ben Gabbana. Good afternoon, Belinda. Making news this hour, former Victorian Minister Adam Somurek has resigned from the Labor Party. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews says he sacked Mr Somurek from his Cabinet after Channel 9 aired allegations of branch stacking and using offensive language about a colleague. Mr Somurek has apologised for the language used but denies the branch stacking allegations. All of the West Australians tested for COVID-19 as part of a two-week blitz have returned a negative result. The state government launched the asymptomatic testing of selected cohorts, including hospitality and tourism workers, to locate any undiagnosed cases or community spread of the virus. No cases were detected out of the 16,000 people tested. And a Singaporean businessman has lost an appeal against his conviction for murdering his former wife, whose body was found in a suitcase floating on the Swan River in Fremantle. A jury found R. Ping Ban guilty of fatally bashing 58-year-old Annabelle Chen in her Mosman Park home and then dumping her in the river in July. 
July 2016. There's more news coming up at one o'clock. Ben, thank you for that. 29 to 1. Still to come between now and the news at one o'clock today. A wrap of the Muche cattle market. John Testro along for the details for you on that. And also taking a look at Western Australia's winter grain crop, the biggest ever. So 8.5 million hectares of winter crop has been planted this season. You'll get to look at the detail in the Grain Industry Association of WA report. Its latest forecast is out now. And, of course, just because it's sort of the, the biggest ever winter grain crop planted doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the biggest harvest on record. Of course, that's going to depend on what happens with um, the rain, the season between now and and then the details of that GIWA report for you very shortly. Right now, it's off to the Weather Bureau. Luke Huntington is with you this afternoon. And Luke, is there any rain falling? There has been a little bit about over the weekend, and Richard Hudson will go through the rainfall figures shortly. But is anything happening rainwise in the southwest land division this afternoon? Yeah, there's not um, too much around uh, today. Uh, we do have a ridge over the southern parts of the state, so um, south of the ridge there just could be some light showers just around mainly coastal regions between um, Perth and Albany today, but generally less than one millimetre, and we haven't really seen too much uh, at this stage. Um, and for tomorrow it's basically similar, um, just some light showers about the coastal region between uh, Mandra and Albany, uh, not too much in it, but we're all waiting for the uh, Wednesday's front, I think, so um, we've got a strong cold front uh, to move through the southwest land division, uh, mainly during the afternoon and into the evening period on the Wednesday, um, and we could see sort of widespread showers, um, possible thunderstorms, and it, the models are indicating that the front could hold together pretty well, so uh, I think we should see some more decent, um, well, better rainfall than what we have seen in the past um, few fronts. Uh, about about 10 to 20 millimetres around the lower west, southwest district. That'll be where the heaviest falls are. And as we get into the agricultural areas, uh, even in the southwest central wheat belt, through the Great Southern, there we could see 5 to 15 millimetres. And in that much-needed area around between Albany and Esperance and just inland, um, even they could see 5 to 10 millimetres. So um, hopefully they get some uh, better rainfall with that. Uh, once that front does move through, there is a uh, cold pool behind it, so that'll keep showers um, right throughout that southwest land division. And it is, uh, oh, it's possible we could see some thunderstorms and hail around uh, mainly coastal areas between Mandra and uh, Bremer Bay. So um, again, uh, five to ten millimetres about the uh, the lower west coast area, and uh, maybe. Maybe the uh, northeastern parts of the southwest land division may not do quite as well from uh, the Wednesday and Thursday one, probably only around one to five millimetres for those parts. Uh, and once uh, Thursday clears away, we see a ridge developing on the Friday. Uh, so showers will contract back to the south coast and just to the, just to the lower west coast um, with some light showers there. All right, and is that it, sort of into the weekend? Is there anything else on the horizon you can see there, Luke? Uh, the weekend's not looking uh, uh, too bad in terms of the weather. Uh, it, the models are going for a system probably later Sunday into Monday. Uh, at this stage, it's of course, it's six to seven days out, so it's um, uncertain at this stage, but at least they're going um, for something at this stage. Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, northern parts of the state... Uh, 
generally clear for today and tomorrow uh, and even for Wednesday. You may, may see some showers develop around the Gascoigne coast with the front approaching. On the Thursday, uh, mainly the showers will be mainly confined to the Gascoigne and the goldfields and the Eucla and uh, mainly about the Euclid coast on, on Friday. So there'll be some light, light falls um, in the inland Gascoigne um, and the heaviest falls through the goldfields will be the south and western parts in maybe one to five millimetres. Any warnings this afternoon, Luke? Uh, there is a strong wind warning and that covers the Lewin and Albany coasts. Thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. This is the Country Hour and it's 24 to 1. Richard Hudson just stepped into the studio and has got all the rainfall figures for you over the weekend. Yeah, in the northern and eastern forecast districts, nothing at all for the Kimberley, but in the Pilbara region, Onslow had seven mils. In the Gascoigne, Kirkalocka had five. Nothing worth reading out in the interior, but in the goldfields, Boolong, 10, and Credo, 7. And Leonora, the airport, had six mils. In the Euclid district, Balladonia, six as well. Air, nine. Forest, eight. And then out on the islands, Barrow Island had eight mils and Varanus Island had 20. In the southwest, Land Division forecast districts. In the central west, Aradale, five. Canna had 12 to 17 at two different locations. Chapman Valley, five. Eniaba 12 and Eridu 5, Nabawar 5 to Braddon t- uh, 14 and Wundy had 5. In the lower west, Ankatel 17 and Bickley 7, Bungendore 9, Dwelling Up 8, Gidgigan up 6, Huntley 9, Jandicott 10, Jarradale 13 to 16 at three different locations. Carnet 21, Carragulla North 13 over five days, Mandurah and Mount Solis had eight, Mushay and Mundaring five, Pinjara, Rolly Stone and Serpentine all had ten, uh, Waruna and Whiteman Park had six, Werribee and Woodridge Estate both had five. In the southwest region, Bailing Up had six mills, Beetle Up 19, Carlotta 11, and I finally figured out where Carlotta is. It's just south of Nanup. I drove past it on the weekend. Kawaram Up 7, Darden Up 5, Donnybrook 5, Four Acres 8, Harvey 5, Carradale 8, Logebrook 6, Manjum Up 10, Margaret River had five to six mills. Mayan up south, seven. McAlinden and Millian up both had five. Mount Williams, six. Nan up five. Northcliffe, 13 to 17 mills at a few different locations in that area. Pemberton, 16. Perryvale Orchard, six. Quinnan up 17. Rosa Brook and Scott River both had six. Shannon, 16. Som Creek, seven. Walpole Forestry, 18. Warner Glen and Willie Abrupt both had five. Windy Harbour, seven. Witchcliffe, 15 mills. Yanmar, six. And Yordamung Lake, seven over four days. In the southern coastal region, Albany, eight. Bremer Bay, six. Dalyap Park, 21. Denbarka, six. Denmark, eight to nine mills at a couple of locations. I was in Denmark, actually. Bumped into a few farmers who are doing a bit of post-seeding R&R. One of them from here on in is calling himself Big Wave Dave. Can't see that nickname sticking. Erin uh, Air 14, Esperance 26, Esperance Airport 11, Kimberley 39, King River 9, Many Peaks 19, Mount Howick 6, Munglin up 5, Nyirill up 8 over 4 days, Oakmarsh Farm 22, Tamar 5, Talina Downs 13, The Duke 13 and Windrush 6. There was some big swell though over the weekend, Bill. Central Wheat Belt, lots of farms received one to four mils, but not many above that. Belka East had five, East Beverly the same, Goodlands had six mils over four days, Mount Westdale six, 
And that was it for the region. And then in the Great Southern region, Dumble Young had five, Newdigate Research Station eight, and Tamble up five. And that's it for the Great Southern. So it'd be interesting to see if that system coming through Wednesday-ish has a little bit more. Thanks for that, Richard. 21 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Western Australian farmers have planted their biggest ever winter crop. In its latest forecast, the Grain Industry Association of WA believes eight and a half million hectares of winter crop has been planted this season, and that's up 400,000 hectares on last season. Giwa's crop report author Michael Lamond says land sown to crops across WA's ag region has been steadily increasing over the past 10 years or so. But he says this season's biggest ever winter crop is directly related to well, what was a good start to the season and also to the number of sheep leaving the state. There's been more crop going in. There's been less pasture. The pasture that's retained is is managed better for to get a high stocking rate. The sheep numbers are you know, down, I think we're down around about 12 million sheep now, so we're quite low. The area planted has never been this high. This will be the highest planting ever. And this year, there's been a quite an exodus of sheep. I think nearly a million sheep have gone out of the state, and it's only the first six months of the year. And in the southern regions, there's been a, they've just been streaming out. So there has been a slight increase in pasture going to crop this year. And you put that over a large area and it doesn't take long to add up. There was also, the outlook was looking really good this year. There was some summer rain. There was, the seasonal outlook was looking really good. Growers went in really early. They started early and they just kept putting extra paddocks in. So it's all those factors that are combined to, you know, we're looking at about, you know, 8.4, nearly 8.5 million hectares, which will be, will be the largest planting on record in Western Australia of total crop. And the announcement China would be imposing tariffs on Australian barley came out about a month ago. Mm-hmm. According to your new figures, did it affect plantings of barley in WA at all? It's reduced barley plantings. You know, our latest assessment is by about 12.5%. And it could have been more than that, although the timing of the announcement, there was a lot of barley already sown. And you know, if the announcement was a little earlier, there might have been a, a greater reduction. You know, so the, the area planted is, has gone from about... 1.9 million hectares last year in a projected one point similar area this year to about 1.6, so about a 300,000 tonne reduction in area. Most of that reduction in plantings has occurred in the in the real traditional malt areas, in the malt belt. So that's the central western Midlands and the western end of the Quinana zones. So the growers in that region still had a bit of barley to go and they were the ones that pulled back the most. As you go further south in the state, there was much less of a reduction in plantings, you know, like the Lakes District really didn't pull back much. The South Coast and the Western Albany, maybe 5%, and uh, Esperance, not much at all either. So there was a reduction in, in plantings in the Geraldton Port Zone, but that was a more a planned move, irrespective of what happened with tariffs, because as the season got later, growers get a bit shy of barley and they go more for wheat. Now, one of the surprising figures in this report is that the amount of oats seeded this year has increased. What's behind that? Yeah, most of the substitution of barley was from barley to wheat, but a, a lot was from barley to oats as you got further south as well. As soon as the barley price dips down to that sort of below 300, and oats is a historic, you know, sort of very high decile range, you know, it's trading around that 8, 9 decile range, 
the advantage that barley has in, in yield is negated and therefore there's been a quite a swing into oats. I mean, the oat area has, it has been creeping up in recent years, mainly from the dedicated hay growers. But with this price adjustment, it's seen you know, a big swing into oats. So we're projecting around half a million hectares of oats, which is a lot of oats. But on the other side of the coin, the lupin area is way down. And a lot of growers in the Geraldton port zone really backed off on lupin plantings due to, again, the late season, the risk of lupins not yielding, and they've had several years of scratchy starts. So the traditional lupin areas in the, the western areas of the, the good sand plain in Geraldton port zone, you know, we're only projecting about 100,000 hectares of lupins in the Geraldton port zone, which is less than 40% of the total area of the state. So growers also may have known that. And, you know, planting oats for, for feed, for stock feed, is probably not a bad move. So most of them, most people would be planting um, oats for hay or would there, are there some milling oats in as well? There is more oat area that goes in for hay than there is for feed or for food and, you know, for milling. But that area has been going up as well. The oat milling capacity in West Australia has been increasing. Oat demand internationally has been increasing. So that oat area for food has been increasing as well. You know, when you look at half a million hectares, you've got a split really of hay, you know, high quality milling oats for food, and then also for stock feed. And the non-traditional oat growers, you know, probably going more for stock feed. So we've really got three components in that total total area. So while it's the highest planting, obviously we have have a bit of a, a dry autumn in most parts. Um, what's the prognosis for the actual yields that are going to come out of that? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Emma. I mean, it. it it's hard to know at the moment, but I, at least half the state has got very little subsoil moisture. And that was really starting to show up in those warm days we had prior to this sort of light rainfall events. The crops weren't really quite tongued in yet, but they were on the verge of it. So without subsoil moisture, it's a relatively late, it's a late-ish start. Even though it was a couple of weeks earlier than last year, the furrow fill and the delayed emergence meant the crops were a little bit slow getting out of the ground. But once they did, they just... You know, a lot of cereals were piling on nearly uh, a leaf and a half, half a week, the canola two leaves a week, which is just, you know, like it's like autumn or spring sort of type growing conditions. So not June growing conditions. So it's, they've, they've caught up ground. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, without the subsoil moisture, they could easily run out of steam again. So big area of the grain belt is going to need a good winter. You know, it's going to need some good soaking rains, which we haven't had. You know, we're probably really only looking at an average sort of total tonnage at this stage or our, or average to below average yields possibly in a lot of the areas. So even though we've got a huge area planted, we may not hit that 17, 18 million tonnes that we did a few years ago. Grain Industry Association of WA Crop Report author Michael Lamond with Emma Field. And let's hope there's something in that front that's coming through on Wednesday, as the Bureau was telling you about just a few moments ago. This through from Greg. The yield predictions of harvest, now as good as the Bureau of Meteorology's long-term wet autumn-winter forecast that has got lost in transit somewhere. Thank you, Greg. The text 0448922604. Get it through in the next couple of minutes. This is the Country Hour 13 to 1. Now, honey has long been used as bush medicine for traditional owners in Western Australia's Kimberley region, but nowadays modern scientific testing shows that some Australian Malaluga honey has medicinal properties similar to those present in Manuka honey. As Courtney Fowler explains, that's created a sweet business opportunity for some of the locals. 
That gentle buzz is the sound of bees hard at work on Roebuck Plains cattle station. They're busily collecting the nectar from an ancient belt of paperbark trees. The honey has been around for generations actually and this is just one of the wonderful uh, products that come straight out of Yarra country. That was Diane Appleby. She's a Yaru traditional owner in the West Kimberley. She says Indigenous people in the region have been using raw bush honey across thousands of years for sustenance and medicine. In the early days when I sit down and listen, you know, my mother says, we didn't have the shops that we, you have now. We didn't have the, the chemists and the pharmacies that you have now. But what they did have was the natural medicines. And in the flowers where the bees come and pollen and they take the goodness out of this tree is very strong in the taste of our honey. It's a richness that from one tree can bring such healing properties. And we are very, very fortunate to have this natural organic products coming straight out of our country. They've made all that honeycomb, it's all a couple of days old, it's all fresh. Six years ago, Diane Appleby and her husband David started Wallager Raw Bush Honey. Combining Indigenous knowledge of native plants with modern day beekeeping has been their golden recipe for success. I started off doing it all by hand and I was, of course I wasn't producing very much and, uh, and fast forward to the present I've, I've now got a, an extraction facility and uh, I can produce seven, eight hundred kilos of honey in a, in a day. The Malaluca honey is uh, it's very aromatic, it's light and sweet and it's, it's actually got quite a, a depth of taste but what makes this Malaluca so special is, is that when I had it tested the results came back with a total activity of 26.6 and it, um, I'm told in layman's terms that it is very high. In fact, the total activity of the Malaluka honey is, is, is as good as anything. Comparable with New Zealand Manuka honey, I'm advised. While honey has long been a staple on the kitchen table for families around Australia, it's only in recent years increasing consumer awareness around the antibacterial properties of honey has seen it transform from an everyday sweetener to a niche product in the booming superfood industry. And it's a trend the Cooperative Research Centre for Honeybee Products suspect is behind a spike in honey sales across Australia during the coronavirus pandemic. So basically all honey sales just went through the roof. It was just incredible that we, nobody could really keep up at one stage. But of course, what it is, what we're trying to build also is our international market. So that's actually been quite difficult. Liz Barber there, she's the CEO of the CRC for honeybee products in Perth. She says once a market dominated by the New Zealand Manuka product, the medicinal potential of honey has Australian researchers also on the hunt for more liquid gold. The other thing that we, you know, we've been doing a lot of research on is there's certain honeys that are better you know, than others. And of course, there's always been this debate you know, about whether you know, peroxide honey is anything as good as the Manuka honey. They work differently, but they both certainly have you know, the fantastic benefits both of them do. And, you know, we're in God's country in terms of, you know, honey production and what happens. Esperance has got a fantastic population of leptospermum that goes right the way through, would be into the wheat belt, which produces the top grade Manuka honey. 
So we actually have it here in, Australia, in Western Australia as well. We have both honeys. We have the peroxide honeys and we have the manuka as well. Do you think some of these species up in the north as well? Do you think there's some untapped potential with the species up here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do agree. I mean, we, what we've been doing down here is we've been looking at the flora mapping it all and mapping flowering times. I must admit, it would be really interesting to do the same study, you know, up north just to you know, be absolutely sure, you know, that that could happen. As you get more north, you actually get more colony forming native bees. So we'd have to be very careful in terms of balance of numbers so we didn't interfere with the native bees as well. You know, whilst, you know, it's all great and, you know, it's nice to grow the industry, you have to keep the balance. So it's just, that's why, you know, the whole beekeeping industry is such a migratory industry. You know, it moves from one big flowering to the next one to the next one. I mean, these guys, you know, it's quite amazing when you talk to the beekeepers how much, how they travel and how they know the bush. My gosh, they know the bush far better than anybody else I've met. And I think that's why beekeepers love getting into it. You know, they've got to know their bees. They've got to know their flora. They're watching the whole time to see indications of things changing, weather, yeah, that's why they love it, I think. They get so close to nature. For David and Diane Appleby, scientifically testing their Malaluka honey has only confirmed generations of Indigenous knowledge on Yauri country. They used to use the nectar from the, the native stingless bee that used to all collect the, the, the nectar in these, in these trees. And, and a lot of people know, particularly Aboriginal people know, the, the history of these saltwater paperbark trees and the fact that they have very strong medicinal qualities. And that's what gave me the idea, if I could put the honeybee on these trees with some success, we'd, uh, we'd have a winner. And uh, this particular honey, Melaleuca honey, uh, we've, we've substantiated those, uh, those claims by getting it scientifically analysed and those results have come back uh, very, very strong. David Appleby from Wallager Raw Bush Honey, ending that report from Courtney Fowler. You can read more about that story online. Just search Honey Kimberley ABC or there is a link for you on the ABC Rural Facebook page. This is the Country Hour. It's six minutes to one off to the markets now and only about 500 head of cattle sold at Mushay last week. John Testro has been at today's sale. John, how did it go? 1,192 cattle penned at Mushay today. That's up 700 on last week and uh, a very mixed quality penning. However, it was possibly the strongest sale for the year. Quality full finished uh, items uh, were keenly sought by the trade and processors and strong interstate grazier demand pushed the score to feeder types. The market values rose considerably. In the local cattle, they were generally 20 to 30 cents dearer. Cows were 20 to 25 cents dearer. Bulls 10 to 15 cents dearer. And pastoral cattle pretty well 10 to 50 cents dearer as well too. I'll just run through some valuations from today. In the local market, the Vila Steers, they sold from 3.42 to 3.96, up 20 cents to graziers and, and feedlotters, uh, to a top of $1,299. The Vila Heifers, 2.24 to 3.80, up 20 cents, topping at uh, $1,314. Yearling Steers, 3.38 to 4.08, uh, up 30 cents, and $1,546 was the top yielding steer. Yielding heifers, $280 to 366 up by 20 cents, and they came out at 1728 for the tops there. Grown steers, 
Up by 30 cents, 320 to 360.1843 uh, uh, received for the top pen there. Grown heifers, 328 to 334, up 30 cents and uh, in excess of $2,000, 2086 for the top grown heifers in the cow market. Light defeaters, 180 to 270. Medium weight score two to the uh, processors. They sold from 210 to 276, up 20 cents, and the prime at 280 to 302, up by 25 cents, and topping at $2,134. In the bull market, uh, light to live export, 290 to 330. Up 15 cents, the medium to the same at 274 to 300, generally firm on those. And prime 262 to 308, up by 10 cents and topping at $2,901. In the pastoral section, we saw some very mixed quality yarding uh, here. Wiener steers, they were quite okay, 320 to 358, up 30 cents, as were the Wiener heifers, 320 to 330, up by 50 cents. Yearling steers, very good, 230 to 330, up 40 cents. The yearling heifers, uh, a mixed quality uh, offering here. The lights, 120 to 216, probably down 20 cents. The medium weights, 248 to 264, down 10. But the heavies were uh, very good at 250 to 296, up by 10 cents. They even had uh, grown heifers at 324 that were up by 30 cents as well too. That completes the uh, market report for the today. And uh, just a reminder that Boyan Up will yard 1,500 store cattle on Friday in one of the last recognised store cattle sales for this financial year. This has been John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much, John. Three to one. You remember it was just over a week ago that the chair of the state's main grain handler, Simon Stead, was on the country and was asked about the future of the CEO, Jimmy Wilson. In October this year, Jimmy Wilson will have been the CEO for three years. And I guess you must have been wondering if he was staying on and whether or not he would get a bonus. And this is what Simon Stead told you at the time. That's all in our uh, annual report, how that works. But in terms of uh, Jimmy, he's been brought in to do a job and uh, that's ongoing. He's got work to do and we're just getting on uh, with uh, with what's happening there. So, are, are you renegotiating a contract or looking at extending it? Are those conversations underway? We, we have a draft contract um, uh, with Jimmy at the moment. So... Um, that's a work in progress at this stage. And when would that take him out to? Oh, I'm not going to disclose that today, Glenda. That's between the board and the CEO. And, uh, you know, he's one of our employees. We don't uh, generally discuss uh, their terms publicly. That contract has now been finalised. I can let you know. Jimmy Wilson has had his contract renewed with no fixed term in line with the rest of the lead team. Lead team members may be eligible for short and long-term incentives, and these are outlined each year in the annual report. And as outlined in the 2019 annual report, Jimmy Wilson will be eligible for a long-term incentive in September this year. And last time I looked at it, I think it was a bonus of $400,000 for the CEO. And just in other CBH news today, um, off the back of the Giwa crop report, 
the CBH is calling on grain growers just to get your crop estimates in to help with the co-ops planning for this year's harvest. And you can submit your estimates a couple of ways, pretty much like last season, through Paddock Planner or the Estimates form, both of which are accessed through the online portal LoadNet. CBH is not offering an incentive to growers to use Paddock Planner this year. Good to catch up with you this afternoon on ABC WA. Time for the latest news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.